A History of Horror by Mike Mark Gratis, twenty ten Frankenstein Frankenstein goes to Hollywood. How do you do, Mister Mark Gratis? Feels that it would be unkind to present this program, but just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold the story of horror films, of men and women, of the motion picture community who sought to create monsters without reckoning upon God. I think you, it would inform you, it would entertain you, it might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you do not wish to subject your nerves to such excitement, now is the time to well. We warned you, the cinema was made for horror movies. No other kind of film offers the same mysterious interpretation as you head into a darkened auditorium. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. No one makes such powerful use of sound and image. No one makes such powerful use of sound and image. The cinema is where we come to share a collective dream, a horror film's most dreamlike of all, perhaps because they engage with our nightmares. I hear something. Stop, stop, change all sounds in this series. Going to revisit the three greatest eras of horror pictures and explore what made their finest films so special. Venture into the locations of forgettable horror moments. Invite leading actors, writers and directors. Share their stories. There's a little shrine to me here. It should be an eternal flame or oh, a huge knife. Oh, so whether you are died in the heart died in the blood, horror fan, or nervous newcomer. I bid you welcome. All the things you inspired me, that inspired me as a writer, actor, horror films, been the most important. Still have very vivid and very happy memories of staying late, up late in the 1970s to watch double film bills or horror hammer films and the old universal films. I was always as my ma used to say, a very morbid child, and I was totally crackers about horror films. Used to watch pro-celebrity golf, just as you, case Christopher Lee used to pop up, as occasionally did. I think that always appealed to me most was the sense of going into a different realm, a realm of shadows and suggestion and spookiness. Because horror is such a personal passion of mine, this series will be unshamedly selective. I'm going to build my count around my favourite films and periods. I'd like to start with the era that when I believe horror cinema really became its own, the first great age of Hollywood's horror. An age that begins with the moment, this moment, the 1925 silent Phantom of the Opera, Phantom played by Lou Charney, was a f- has worn Mary Fibbins character never to look beneath the mask, its classic shocking reveal. It captures the essence of being a horror movie fan. Without knowing, knowing you should, you shouldn't look for what, wanting to see and maybe getting more than you bargained for. Horror cinema is repentant with pioneering filmmakers. Few more so than the man beneath the phantom's makeup, who Charlie, the godfather of horror actors. Charlie was one of the greats in the 1920s Hollywood. Among these following surviving compatriots is a fellow cast member from the Phantom, Colin and me. And he's a former Universal Studios. She's now a Sprite Centurion. This is the 2010, so she may not be longer, longer around. 
I can only say he was a genius. Whatever part that he played, he was that part. There is a story that Mary Fibbin, Philbin fainted when he took off his mask. It could have been true, because it is enough to make anybody faint. Luciani, the man of faces and faces, played a succession of maimed, monstrous characters among the, during the silent era. It feels like Hitch, Hatchback of Notre Dame, London after midnight. His self-taught made-up makeup skills drew his background his background in travelling vaudeville and theatre. Johnny described his talent, strongly characterization. He did all his own makeup. It's pretty horrible. Yes, all that. I don't know how he did it by himself, but he did. Exactly how Johnny achieved his makeup effects was also intrigued or has always intrigued me. Fortunately just as a phantom lurked below the Paris Opera, a relics of Charney can be found in the bowels of Los Angeles Natural History Museum and the consonantship of Beth Borelling. So Beth, what treasures do you have for us here? We have Lou Charney's makeup kit. There is there he is, Lou F. Charney, Hollywood, California. Wow, it's a strawny holy relics. What is what is in here? It's one of the glass eyes that Charney had specially made. Pictorially gruesome. It's own little box, isn't it? Mm. When I was a kid, I kind of grew up with the stories of lengths of which he went to create these things. He put himself through an unbelievable amount of pain. That's an example of that. To wear something that thick, covering over one, almost your entire eye, could have been comfortable. It's like putting a billiard ball in your eye. Now believe that Charlie achieved the Phantom's famous missing nose effect, using thin wire to pull his own nose back creating the titrated snout-like look. Remarkably, he did much of the working on his own. It turns out he had something to practice on. Wow, this is a life cast that Charlie had made of his own face, with glass eyes inserted. He used to practice some of his makeup techniques. He would look, would look, take a look, see if he needed a little more here, a little less there. If he didn't, doesn't, didn't like the look entirely, it was much easier to scrub it off and decide to... Looking at himself in the mirror, so to speak, and so actually apply it on his own face. It's quite fitting that someone so obsessed with bodily dismemberment ends up with his own head in a box. They laugh. According to Hollywood legend, Chinese ghost still haunts the Paris Opera, set in Universal Studios, which remarkably survived a grand monument. The grand monument to the silent age. It's also a reminder that all Chinese astonishing transformation, the Phantom of the Opera, is much an exercise in epic spectacle as it's as it is claustrophobic horror picture. That's probably because Universal founder Clara Lemmy was not a fan of her terrific material, but the Phantom's success was helped by his ambitious son and partner, Carl Lemmy Jr., to save him. Otherwise, Carlemi Junior set out his sights. An even more chilling, more chilling property, Boehm Stoker's sensational vampire novel, Dracula, Junior Vivage, another extravagant production. But he was about to have his, have his wings clipped. 1929 saw the Wall Street crash in the beginning of the Great Depression. Like all other Hollywood studios, Universal had cash flow problems, which meant had scaled down its productions. Fortunately, Junior came across another more effect- cost-effective way of telling a director's story. Stoker's novel been adapted of, for a modest British touring production had gone on to become an expected hit. 
for ease of staging, it was a kind of a drawing room Dracula, set largely in a Hampstead Hamstead house. A play had transformed Stoker's hairy moustache, rank breath old count into a more elegant figure who could be welcomed into society London society. As for me, I'm a stranger in a strange land, yet I've grown to love this great London, which is with its teeming millions so different from my own land of Transylvania. After all, the walls of my castle are broken, the shadows are many, the wind breathes cold through the broken battlements. A play ruefully cut back the action, the locations of the director of Stoker's novel, and rather added rather a lot of talking. That didn't bother Tony and me. Dracula was going to be the first horror picture with sound. You're in the very, f- you're in the very first scene, Dracula. Oh yes, the opening scene. I say the first lines of the dialogue. Can you remember them? I'll try. Among the rugged peaks, have thrown down upon the Bunga Pass, I found crumbling castles of bygone age. Among the rugged peaks, of the thrown down, and upon the rugged fa- pass, I found crumbling castles of bygone age. Hooray, I did it. I can remember lines that I, I was supposed to learn yesterday. I can't remember lines that I was supposed to learn yesterday. As well as basing itself on a play, play script, film also took on a play, Broadway lead, Hungarian actor called Bela Nagosi. I am Dracula, a veteran of ben, ben, Budapest's leading theatres. Lugosi's American career previously been limited to it by his accent. Listen to them. Children of Night. What music they make, Lugosi's was somewhat drawn out delivery, helps render the film's mostly dialogue scenes rather ponderous. ponderous. Hollywood is getting the hang of the talkies, and Doctor, director Tom Browning, Tom Browning was, was on sure ground in the words, world of sequences. Here Lugosi becomes a shadowy figure who comes to get, to get you while you sleep. You can see why people might have found this terrifying in some cases, initially chilling. Were you aware of everyone finding him subtly attractive in a vertonian way? He had a charm. I mean, you could tell him, call him handsome, his dark eyes and all that. He had tremendous power for attracting you. Almost, you couldn't resist the guy. You know, Lugodi's charismatics aside, charisma aside, the film really rises above it as stage origins. We never see a drop of blood in the, or a flash of a fang. That's why it's a peculiar treat to get close to look at another surviving cast member. Not as frightening looking, looking now. I'm not so sure what's it, what is made of, of it. It's basically a wire skeleton or a frame over, over it is stretched some heavy duty cotton fabric. I assumed it would be rubber or something. Now it gave it a much more realistic look flapping in the wind with the fabric. Then it would have been it would have rubber. No, master, I wasn't going to say anything. I had told him nothing. I am loyal to you, master. Do we do you know what what this here is made of? No, I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out to be some kind of domestic animal. My Tunis hair pieces, old hair pieces, for all his limitations. Dracula had a super, had a, the supernatural. It had sound. It had logosi. Combination was a box office smash. You can say Dracula was the first modern horror film, but it lacks something. Dracula features some aristocratic settings, dark, decaying castles of cobwebby crypts, but it doesn't really capture that gothic 
sensibility that heightens the atmosphere of romance, a mobility that gives us the novel so thrilling. Now take a look at this, the wounds rising. We no change, the time to lose, clanging. Careful, within the first minutes of Frankenstein, we find itself one of the grimmest graveyards in the cinema. Here he comes, watching a freshly buried coffin assumed, caressed with neurophilic tendencies. He's just resting, waiting for, few, for new life to come. It's a film, no ambitions, without embracing the dark and the macabre. Frankenstein was shot only a few months after Dracula. It was daring's tone and stylish execution. It's massively forward. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive, it's moving. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. Name of God now. I know what it feels like to be God, thunder. Exactly who was alive under all those bandages. Universal originally wanted Bernard Goosey to play the creature. Even prompting the film of him in a row. Promoting him in a film in a row. Before it was even been shot, but after what would now be called creative differences, because he left this project, pictures handed up to an up-and-coming English director, James Whale. He needed to find a monster fast, sitting in a universal canteen one day. Whale spotted a fellow diner and beckoned over him, over him, over. Your face, he said, had certain possibilities. The owner was the face was another ex-Pratt Englishman, whose birth name was William Henry Pratt. Pratt's distinctive features owe something to the Indian blood of his family. And more than two decades of theatre work, bit parts and films, had become resigned and never having a major role. His stage name was Boris Karloff. It was my first 81st film, and no one had seen the first 80 century. So after 20 years in the business, love becomes an overnight success. In August 1931, James Whale came, came filming Frankenstein at Universal on sets such as this very one. But for the first week of shooting, at least, one key player was capricious by his absence. Months himself, he was undergoing a fitly grueling process of creation. The result would be one of cinema's most enduring icons. Here he comes. Let's turn out the light. Approaching footsteps, Carlos had placed under aspicities of Universal's head of makeup, Jack Pierce, who spent two weeks working directly with him on top of six months, he already spent researching ideas. Pierce's months is surely one of the greatest makeup designs in cinema, visually, not credibly. Though, thought though, to be chilling logic, the uh, top of his head is misshapen, stitched because a different brain had been placed in another man's cranium. It adds to Carlos's length, height, a bold in his neck, often thought with simply as screws holding the neck, or, in fact, lectros used to reanimate the corpse. This is a face which really does tell a story, but the heart of the film, which has made it immortal, is Carlos's performance in his hands and months becomes a much more than just a brilliant piece of makeup it understands its time it's wonderful frankenstein's frankenstein where is he his green is quiet you fool get away with that torch initially childlike and gentle he's only loaded gold into violence do you think he's identified with a monster society as outside? I think that probably due to his own personal experiences. As a young boy in school, he experienced a lot of prejudice because of his colouring. He understood what looking different makes a difference. I think he brought some of his own personal experiences in interpretation of his role. He always said that children got 
that said that children got it. They understood that the creature was the victim, not the perpetrator. It was a young little girl in Frankenstein was never afraid of him in his, own, in, in his makeup. Oh, yes, that little girl. This was where James Well was taken. Got a lot of little too far ahead of his times. Merlot Lake is scarily half an hour's drive from Hollywood. It feels like a different world. It's in this idyllic setting. First truly controversial scene. Horror of cinema was shot. It came, I can make a boat. See how mine floats, he grunts. No, you're hurting me. No, even today, the killing of a child on screen is shocking. Back in 1931, considered by many to be wholly unacceptable. Censors in several American states and countries, including Britain, insisted on cutting away before little Maria is thrown into the lake. Universal selves have re-ended it all prints of the film. When it reissued a few days later, the original screen was restored for another fifty years. Frankenstein's heady content didn't stop it from storming in its box office. With two hits in a row of horrors, well, well and truly established, proper semantic gender. Jean, the ghosties Dracula and Carlos Munzer were twin pillars upon which it had been built. Oliver found the word for studios, a quick respond. A result was a flaring of imagination and innovation. Paramount's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde featured a dazzling single-shot transformation sequence heightened by subjective cameras, enabled us to experience it through Jekyll's own eyes. He chokes the secret to the trick was a retorting filter on the camera, which revealed layers of different coloured makeup. The sequence helped Frank Rick March win the Best Actor Oscar in 1932. Warner Brothers were best known for the gritty gangster pictures, so not surprising that they broke with the gothic tradition and set their horror films in the present day. Misty the Wax Museum was shot in early Technicolor, which gives disturbing lifelike flesh tones to those melting wax figures in the film's striking opening sequence. It's a sensationally creepy plot which would inspire the wonderfully Wonderful Corian screaming. Life Rathwell plays the sculptor, steals corpses and embalms them in a wax, wax to exhibit in his museum. Rathwell decides to try his technique on Fay Way. The film achieves a remarkable variation on the, on the pantoms where we're masking. It still makes my hair stand on end today. Let me go, let me go, let me go. She screams, splendid film, both. So why aren't they as well remembered as universal perhaps? It's because Matthew Munsters were as rich and unnoticed as Dracula and Frankenstein's creature. Universal had another great asset on it, one of the most stylish actors, directors of his time, James Well, to use a much later term. I think the Well was the most first horror amateur. He pulled up Frankenstein with a series of incredibly erratic films which reflect his own rather complex personality. Manufacturer well made an old dark horse, perhaps from a detective tale, classic scenario, which lost strangers stumble across an isolated house and open a Pandora's docks of menace. A blow is blocked on both sides, landsides. He groans, even well short, but it sound like that. Builder Killer was played by Boris Cullif, once again unrecognisable in Jack Pierce's makeup. The film's leading lady was Gloria Stewart. She remembers how, unlike many voters of the day, well, it's her exceptional control. 
exceptional control of production. He said several times, I'll go over the script the night before the morning of shoot. He made it very clear to us, all of us, he prepared to, he prepared the script. It was that, it was that, it was unusual. He took very special care of me and very, he was very critical. Hurt my feelings a couple of times. He was very sharp. What sort of things did he criticize you about? Diction, approaches to speech. He would not, he stopped you that cold. No, Gloria, that's not it. She whimpers, wails, cultivated precision. Melodies is oranges and oranges. He born in a working class family in black country, a Dudley. He carefully concealed his background behind a scunic manner. He is also gay, and this may have further encouraged his arch about his sense of humour. As a result, the old dark horse is both menacing and darkly comic, and wicked too. Young and handsome, silly and wicked. You think nothing but your long, straight legs and your white body. How to please your man. You revel in, revel in joys of fleshy love, don't you? That's fine stuff. I'm, I'm not. That's fine and stuff. Still, but if what's in, t- in two in time? Don't, don't. How dare you? I think well was pining, pining in what we think of as a camp, a knowing excess which is much about us. Humorous as shock. Maybe somewhat opening. It's just suspecting Straightwood horror film. It's also explained why Wells films have been added so well, have aged so well compared to those of his contemporaries. Thunder, Mr. Penrill, Mr. Kane, McCombie, Miss Penrill, Miss McCainy. She screams this very famous scene in which Boris menaces you. How this is actually. How was it actually when you made it seem with Boris Koloff? How did you get you get grabbed by Bar- Koloff and look happy? He laughs. You don't look happy. You look like you've been grabbed and you're scared. I don't know how to do it any other way. It was acting. He laughs. Do you feel frightened being approached by him? Boris, he was a pussycat. Come on. No, I don't feel frightened at all. He was always very gently. Carl Enemy Jr. was pleaded, pleaded well to make a follow-up, the most successful collaboration. A well laid down, a clear condition. January 1935, saw Jane Well back to the Universal lot, making another Frankenstein movie. He'd been tempted back by the promise of complete creative control. It's hard to believe the studio know they were letting themselves in for. Well was insisted in simply repeating himself. The film was made in... The meal me had in mind was highly personal, eccentric, and quite extraordinary. A bride of Frankenstein, well, makes him fancier, even more sympathetic victim of society at one point, bringing his home the scene most blasphemous in a blatant symbolism. But Wells' main focus of interest of the film seems to be neither the monster nor Frankenstein, but a new character, Marcy Camp Creation. Very queer-looking old gentleman, sir. Might see you in a secret grey manner, he said. Tonight alone, bring him in. <coughs> Mitzi, shut the fuck up. Henry, who are you? Who is this man? Dr. Perius. Baron Frankenstein. How I, now I believe Perius was paid by Ernest Fenborough, an old friend of Wells from his theatre days in England. Between takes on set, Fenborough's practice needle point, which he was highly accomplished. Alone, you've created a man. Now together we create this, his mate. You mean, yes, a woman. It should be really interested. 
Prius is one of the most subversive figures in 1930s cinema. Quite obviously, homosexual character, suing a grotesque substitute for a heterosexual reproduction, loving every minute of it. To a new world of gods and monsters, the film builds chronolithic, cinematic unveiling of the bride, inherited by Prius, a secretly, queerly farish, with a pleasant of Jane Pierce's nefiti inspired makeup. She perverse idea of womanhood, the bride of Frankenstein. Stitched together, combination of daughter and mate, the bride is beautiful in a wholly unsane way. Brian Frankenstein was Wells' greatest achievement in the director. It's also his last horror picture, being pushed to Gene as far as he wanted. Wells was perhaps happy to let it separately collapse. Hollywood's horror really was increasingly unstable position. Early 30s America had nothing approaching effective censorship, and some films are pushing well beyond the camp and gothic in this remarkably twisted sadistic territory. Sadistic territory. There's mad love in which the shaven haired Peter Lorry grifted the hands of murderer to a mutilated concert. Penis, a land island lost souls, Charles Lambton, experimenting animals to create a race of half human creatures. There was Black Cat, which climates with Bolingrusi, flaying Boris Collar for live. Where you see it in silhouette, but nevertheless, however, one film beyond all others from the area remains a tourist this day. Where's eight? About eight. I got the best Christmas present I ever received. In fact, it's the only Christmas I can remember that where all my other presents lay unopened because I was given this wonderful book, Alan G. Frank's The Movie Treasury of Horror Movies. The which for many years has become my absolute Bible. There was a time when I knew every single page, every single picture, but there's one photograph that I used of Harry Pass. In fact, I remember the paper clipping, two papers, pages together in order to avoid looking at it. It's no wonder it's a seal for the 1932 film Freaks. Freaks is lurid, but holy original saga, sexual mutilation. Manipulation, revenge, set in a travelling sideshow, made by Tom Browning, the director of Dracula, who boldly decided to use actual carnival performers in the film, blurring a fancy in reality, made a picture of the book so disturbing me. For me, this isn't the brilliant Jack Pierce makeup job. They are real people. Early bad omen for film's reception came with a novelist and screenwriter, Ferris F. Scott Fitzgerald. Walked in an MG canteen, saw a pair of Siamese twins, having lunch and ran outside to throw up his own, his own. For much of the film, Browning presents the carnival characters sympathetically. But he also establishes an uncomfortable sexual tension, passion of, mid, of the midget hands for its such quick trapeze artist, Cleopatra. She strings him along and poisons him so she can inherit his fortune. When they discover Cleopatra's destruction, the other performers has acted a terrible revenge, a vividly staged sequence that's like primeval oozing nightmare. Characters are also easily a world earlier portrayed sensibility, now depicted as crawling, squealing, squirming, menacing, a shameless case of double standards from burning. She screamed, but I can't be defined at freaks. It was one of the most memorable payoffs in her. Horror hit cinema, we find out the true nature of the revenge acted on Cleopatra. It plays on both a grotesque level reveal and as the punchline of the backest of jokes. Believe it or not, here she is, she scorts, 
How can you feel? Felt a warm to a film which somebody's turned into a giant chicken woman. But well, asked the 1932 audience. Bunny's film bombed in a box office of MGM plucked from the movie theatres within a month of its release. Following costly controversies like freaks backlashes from variety campaigners, actual bands in lucrative foreign territories like Britain, Hollywood's enthusiasm for horror began to wane almost as quickly as it had risen. But seeking to earn more extra cash, his own two original horror hits, he was relaunched Dracula and Frankenstein as a double bill, astonished by the popularity. Even if his children losing their appetite for horror, the public were hungry for more. The result was a second wind horror at the end of the thirties. He still took the lead with Son of Frankenstein. Boris Karloff's returned, multiple casts. John Wells' high gothic camp was replaced by more friendly, family-friendly, swashbuckling approach. Film also introduced a new face, four-year-old Donnie Donegan, who played Basil Rathbone's son, the grandson of Frankenstein, if you will. Hello, good morning, son. Did you hear a nice, have a nice sleep? Yes. So, Donnie, great pleasure to meet you. I think I should just say, well, hello, well, hello, they laugh, come right on. Donnie's biggest claim to fame, he will later be the voice of Frankenstein's brain, Dizzy Bambi, but for me, the feel lies of meeting someone came to first, can give a first account, first hand account of working with perhaps the greatest cast of any classic horror film. The first time I met Boris Karloff, the first thing he did was brought me an ice cream. Now, how can you possibly be afraid of someone who brought you an ice cream? Right? First time I saw him, then in costume, I couldn't have done it's because I just, it just disrupted things. I burst out laughing. Cut out, cut, take four, Donnie. Quit laughing, cut. Take six, the playfulness. So it reflected in film with sparkle and humour, particularly former Bernadette who is a body statue of Logar, slides nimbly between menace and mischief. I think it's the best performance he ever gave. He's alive. How long has he been here? Long time. He's my friend. He does things to me, for me. Has he always been here? Always, nearly always, the basis of the dead. We're all dead here. Some of the crew would applaud him. I don't remember getting applauded. He applauded me, laughed at me, you know. When he was around people, and keen attention. People paid keen attention. It was at least aware enough to know, boy, this is real performance quiet. That's all, that'd be, that'd be all, the old car. We go back to Castle Frankenstein, be careful. He goes, hey, you spit at me. I'm sorry, I'll cough. I see your bone get stuck in my throat. He coughs while well, cough had gone from strength to strength since his breakthrough. The ghostly fortunes have been mixed. So much in the universe were able to secure his services. Not down right. They tried to hire him cheaper. Because they heard comic difficulty. Ambassador Rothone and Boris Koloff stood against the studio on that and ensured that he had more responsible salary. Apparently, he responded to all their help because his performance was significant. A real twinkle in his eyes, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. His film that s- seeks to entertain rather than horrify. Because of glee, malevolence, balanced by warmth below. Donnie's character and the monster. Whereas Little Marie is thrown in the lake. The first film, the monster refuses to harm the boy despite being sent to kidnap him by the eventual Yugar. Do you feel there was a sort of connection between the child and the monster? I know there was. 
I think I think holding me like this opposed to some more violent thing. I think he had I think that was his idea. They had him hold me like this for two takes and then he dropped and he dropped me. I bounced off the floor. It's hard deck down there and they decided to buy to buy him to me. Him. If anyone would look carefully he could see a artificial hand. It's a little phony. So he couldn't drop me. A thought occurred to me. I got to be the only guy still sucking in the world that can say I was wired to Frankenstein. But last, Daddy, Daddy, amongst the screams, of course, by now the audience knew it would take more than plunging into a pit of sunfire to finish off the monster for good. But as for Karloff, betrayal was concerned. It really was the final curtain. He's grateful, really grateful for that role. To that role. And he sometimes referred to the creature in interviews as best friend. But he felt that films of that role were gone so far as he could without the creature becoming the blunt of bad scripts, bad jokes, and he didn't want to be a part of that. He could see a downward trend. He didn't want to take his friend down that path. Few of Universe's horror productions now had the quality of Son of Frankenstein. By 1940s, the studio was incredibly busy making sequels, not just Frankenstein, but also about his original properties. They included The Mummy, The Throat of Man, both of whom were Playboy, Lou Turney's son, Lou Turney Jr. Something as sequels regular. Production line approach showed you how Universal Muslims have gone from being terrifying bogeymen, familiar favourites. <coughs> but surprisingly, his arrival showed his attempt to create his own monster parade to make horror, take horror cinema back into the shadows where blonde invert, insert the influence of film makers continue to this day. Climbing just starts up growling. No should have looked more obviously at Universal Money Spinning Mirage of Monsters than RKO. Yes, the RKO, which made Citizen Kane, needed to make quick, fast, quick cash flowing that minister following that minister flop. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of modern girl, cursed by an ancient legend, the legend of the cat people. During the early 1940s, Narcoyo released a string essentially titled horror pictures, but the actual films showed a less sensible mastery of the psychological of the horror. It's quite revolutionary. All were produced by Val Linton, who appointed head of the RKO horror unit in 1942. Linton's budget was tight. The boss's policy was to choose a commercially sounding title first and then commissioned a screenplay to fit. Within these limits, Linton was given a free creative hand. He laid a very carefully. Linton's first picture was Cat People, the story of a woman who turns into a painter who caught in the throes of passion to jealousy. Films celebrate seeing set pieces show a love rival being stalked. Leighton realised that restricted budgets wasn't disadvantaged because in horror, less could be more. Monsters don't even have to be seen, just suggested. It was said in the sudden great shock. Didn't, didn't have to be called by something explicit or even intrusively frightening. Screaming, shrieking breaks, a technique of a slow bowler, bowler build-up, followed by a sudden but unthreatening jolt, had become known apparently through as a Leighton bus. It's what Leighton buses in more recent and famous films. The scene from the Exodus plays of pure Leighton. Director Frank, William Franken, uses the shadow of the attic to keep our nerves at a hair trigger. 
chattering, she screams in ding singing voice, Oh, Carl, Jesus Christ, Carl, don't do that. Don't anyone... But not everyone is impressed by Leighton. I just think he's so overrated. Everybody watches Van Leighton for a couple of scenes. A village swimming pool scene. What? Screeching and screaming? Nothing in the frame near her. Just lighting. The pool's lit. She's in the middle of the pool. Nothing's going to get let get her. Well, it's fright. What? When it's frightening, is when there's something around you. There's an argument, a very strong argument. I think you can do it. You can do it, and I do it. When if you don't, then if you don't, deliver your cheating. I agree with you that. But you can, if you can, you have a monster thing that looks pretty good. Show it, show it. I mean, Jurassic Park done by Valentum. We nothing. There are many reasons to enjoy Leighton's work. He gave Boris Corus some of his finest roles in his career in films like The Body Snatcher, which showcased the range of his acting ability. There are monster fairies. Sooner there for monster fairies. Sooner than we thought. A stroke of luck, you might say. Good. Why? That, that, that's the street singer. I know her. I know, tell you. She was alive and nearly, and hardly, uh, hardly, hardly all this evening. It's possible she could be dead. You could never have been got on this body fairly. You are entirely mistaken. This is get, better give me my money. You, and make the proper entry. And this film, Koloff, once again, plays along Bella Lugosi. Lugosi was relegated to a secondary role. Quite literally overpowered by Koloff. So put your down down. How can I show you, man? This is how you, they did it. There's something very resonant about the different fates of these two men. Play such a circular critical role to have his fear of cinema. Because he was always felt he's cut out for something better. Cut out for something better than Koloff. Grateful of horror for his unsuspected and late success. Wow. Doesn't everybody have a room like this? I would like a bathroom like this. Wow. Clodoff went to enjoy regular work in film and television. Rest of his career. Lived long enough to enjoy some of his respect. Eventually came his way in a pivotal figure in 20th century f- popular culture. It was stamps from 1997. Classic movie monster stamps. My father was on two of them. One for Frankenstein, one for the mummy. Later in 2003, set of teen stamps was depicted. Various figures, disciples, filmmaking. My father's face was selected for disciple for makeup. Uh, as I told you, I told by stamp collectors, my father was the only person of the present that had been more than two stamps. So he'd been on three stamps. Really quite an honour. Clough never stayed too far, strayed through too far from the dream. He never seemed worried by that. But Lugosi, however, seemed trapped on the treadmill of horror sequels. Lugosi had tried to avoid being typecast in Dracula-like roles and not actually, did not actually play the Count since his debut, but struggling with his finances and health, he finally forced to embrace his role and defined him in the public imagination. 1948, he took up the Dracula cake once again in an Abbott Costello movie. It could have been the final hallucination. Lugosi Brings of dignity and numbing humour to the role. I think this second performance as a count now stands up better than the first. I must say, my dear, I approve very slightly, highly of your choice. What we need today is young blood and brains. What's what's surprising about Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein is amongst the comedy, it boasts with some striking horror sequences, screaming, look what happens to a woman in this scene. Chick, do you believe me now? Yes. 
Against all the odds, the film is a fine, fiery flourish, universal horror cycle. But Agusi's own horror career, an expected last act, took its full circle. In 1931, he'd been invited to play Freddie Britain star via the track of stage page. Agusi now found himself performing in towns like Eastbourne in a sort of regional theatres where the play had first, first been seen a quarter of a century before. It must have let, felt a long way from Hollywood. To have seen the test not only Lugosi's drawing power, but that of Count himself. Production hoped for West End run, but nobody would take them on until production had first proved its preferability outside of London. Lugosi's leading lady on tour is the English actress Shirley Wayne, who played the role of Lucy Seawood. What do you think Lugosi took on tour? I think he felt his career was sinking. It why do you think Lugosi took on tour? I think he felt his career was sinking. Again, less, becoming less well known and less important. I think he had a great hope to come to England, played in the West End, being made, being, would bring his prestige up again. When the management sent the tour out, I don't think they realised the audience would come much more suffocated, inclined to giggle each and every night. It didn't, at Brighton, I don't think. It certainly didn't in Belfast. They screamed, but there was a bit of giggling in the golden green, golden green, also in Manchester. I think that this dress spelling, virtue indeed. You once said to me, you're no Dracula's Hamlet to me. Regional theatres were as far as Dracula revival got. Lugosi never achieved a comeback he sought. He died five years later, and perhaps finally came to terms a role he could never escape. He buried in his Dracula cape. Why did the audience? which once thrilled in horror, now laugh at it. Lugosi's tour showed how little horror had really moved on since its heyday in the 1930s. Meanwhile, the world entered atomic age. Hollywood's response was a new set of horror terrors. So adventure monsters could be treated by scientists and soldiers, not with state or silver bullets. She screened by the early 1950s horror cinema was pretty much extinct, after barely two decades, but of course, it's just when you think the monster's dead that it comes back strongest. Next time, full colour vampire lust and gushing gore. British Hammer Films Conquer the World. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.